Welcome to another 4 Minutes of Threads. Since we last did one of these episodes, I have visited Sheffield and many of the Threads filming locations, so I feel closer, um, horribly closer than ever to the film. I thought I couldn't get much more absorbed in it, having had it blazing in my consciousness since I was three. But it seems that I could. There is always room to fall deeper into such a grim obsession. And uh, remember, of course, what Nietzsche said. Battle not with monsters, lest you become a monster. And if you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. Well, I've been staring into the Threads Abyss since that autumn night of September 1984. So I think by this point I am 98% Abyss. So let's start. Um, Apologies if my voice sounds a bit rough. Um, I'm just back from Blackpool and we got absolutely soaked in the typical British seaside weather. And I've had a cold since I got back. But I'm sure a bit of Threads will perk me up. So our last four minutes took us up to the death of Ruth's parents, which of course happened off screen. They were sheltering down in the basement of their big house when they heard creaking floorboards overhead. Looters had broken in. We see the looters leave and they are quickly caught and one of them is shot at in the street by a soldier and he dies there. The fact that the looters are apprehended almost instantly, tells us that there are groups of armed soldiers wandering the streets, looking for looters mainly, because what other crime is worth the effort and the risk at this point? Never mind that supercar you've always fancied? Never mind being tempted to pinch the dosh from the office payroll run? Or finally having the guts to chuck a brick through your boss's window? Because what is the point of satisfaction? a bunch of notes and a fast car, because all that matters now is tins of soup and bags of crisps. And that is indeed what our looters emerge with from the Beckett house. And as they stand out in the filthy, rubble-jammed streets discussing their haul, they say, what do you get? You know, what's in the bag? The fact that they do this tells me they are not yet driven to terrible animal starvation. Sure, they're hungry, hungry enough to steal and risk being captured or shot at, but the the wee discussion they have out in the street, oh, what did you get? It suggests they're not yet at the stage where they will eat anything. They can still have curiosity about foods and flavour. They can still have their favourites. As do the soldiers who claim their loot after they've been dragged away, moaning that the crisps they've stolen are prawn cocktail. This scene takes place 22 days after the attack, so we don't yet have terrible, agonising, gnawing starvation, which could drive people to horrible, unspeakable behaviour. I'm thinking, of course, of cannibalism. We've heard, of course, that this happened during the famine in Ukraine and during the siege of Leningrad, to name just two examples. So there, in our recent history, in Europe, We have stories of people being driven to that terrible act by starvation. 
So it's not too much of a leap to think that it could have happened in Britain in 1984, after a strategic exchange. (laughs) Strategic exchange, it's such a, a clinical and cold term. I prefer nuclear holocaust. But being 22 days after the attack, there will still be food in people's houses. There will still be some remnants in the shops, which are still standing. And so our looters and soldiers can afford to be a bit picky and turn their nose up at prawn cocktail. Even though prawn cocktail is obviously the superior crisp flavour. But this is another reason why Threads is so frightening. It's like constantly being forced to descend a dark staircase. You keep thinking you've reached the bottom. You nudge your feet about on the step and find, oh God, there's more, there's more still to go. Down and down into even greater darkness, even worse horror. So yes, these people are desperately hungry. So hungry they will loot and kill and risk death. But there's still further down to go. There is still, for example, the frenzy of starvation, which forces you to, for example, eat a dead sheep high on the moor. Another indication that things are not yet as bad as they could be, as they will be, is that when the soldier fires on one of the looters, he does so only on being given a strict order. So this suggests there is not yet a total breakdown in law and order. It's not as if we have gangs of soldiers roaming the streets, just spraying bullets around, doing what they want. There is still order and discipline from the armed forces when dealing with civilians. So that's one thing which hasn't uh, yet given way completely. But down the staircase we go. So we might think there was no need for this uh, slaughter. No need for the Becketts to have their heads battered in in the basement. And no need for the fleeing looter to have been gunned down in the street. This only happened because of starvation. But if the authorities had been more capable and organised and had been able to properly and efficiently distribute their stockpiled food, then perhaps people wouldn't have been so desperate. Well, that's an argument you could make. Or you could be a pessimist, as I am, and think that no matter what kind of rations were allocated, it would never be enough for some people, and they would always try to take or grab more. There is also the question of demand and supply. Can the authorities simply dish out rations over and over to Sheffield? (laughs) They'll run out eventually, won't they? And then you'll have a population who are even more frantic and confused and dislocated and angry than they were, having grown gratefully used to the fact that the authorities in this hellish new world are at least available to hand out hot soup and cups of tea. There is at least that comfort. And then suddenly there's not. 
That's going to stir up a bit of anger, is it not? A bit of rebellion. So perhaps it's not in the authorities' interests to be quite so efficient and benevolent. We've also discussed the possibility before that um, in this situation, if it ever comes to pass, the authorities, um, knowing that there will be no more trucks rolling up to the warehouses to replenish stock, will be very keenly aware that food is limited. So perhaps they would not be keen to just dish it out instantly after the attack. Maybe they would, uh, so the argument goes, let the hopelessly weak, injured and sick die off. And then you can start some kind of organised food distribution. No point wasting those prawn cocktail crisps on useless mouths. People who are going to die anyway. Keep it. Keep it as a reward for workers. Keep it as fuel for the workers. No, it's far better to make things clear from the outset. This is a new world. It's bloody horrible. And if you want food, you will need to earn the food. And so we have a radio broadcast, summoning the survivors to work. All able-bodied citizens, men, women and children should report for reconstruction duties, commencing 0800 hours tomorrow morning. The inhabitants of release band F, that is Doran Totley, Abbeydale and Woodseats, should rendezvous in Abbeydale Park. Release band B, that is Netherlands... Money has had no meaning since the attack. The only viable currency is food, given as reward for work or withheld as punishment. In the grim economics of the aftermath, there are two harsh realities. The survivor who can work gets more food than one who can't, and the more who die, the more food is left for the rest. So food is everything. It's your reward, it features as your punishment, it's your energy. Without food, you have no energy and so cannot work. Without work, you will get no food. You're trapped in a circle, and all you can do is plod round and round in that miserable circle, chasing a bit of food, another bit of food, another bit, another day over, another portion of food. What a life. The screen shows us survivors queuing to be fed. We're at a graveyard, and a fireman seems to be distributing water to a queue of people who are holding cups. Well, what else would a fireman do at this point? There are no fires to fight. Everything that can burn has already collapsed into ash. So perhaps they are focusing their attention now on the provision of water. And this would make sense. If you've listened to my previous episode called The Green Goddess, you'll hear that I interviewed a former member of the Auxiliary Fire Service. That is, the guys who would have been called up to support the regular fire service in wartime. And he told me that their main role, and the main role of those hefty big green goddess engines they drove, was to shift water. That's how he put it to me, shifting water. The green goddess was really just a massive big tough water tank. And he told me of a training session where they had hooked up lots of green goddesses, all lined up in a row, one connected to the other, and they were all feeding water on up the chain 
to the regular fire engines and the firemen at the front of the queue. So there we have it. Shifting water was their priority in a nuclear war situation. Because let's not pretend that firemen can tackle a firestorm. No one can. So that's what we see here. No need for water to fight fires anymore, but certainly there's a need for drinking water. This scene uh, where food and water is being distributed takes place in a graveyard. Now, for a film so committed to humdrum realism, you might think, well, that's a touch melodramatic. But it does make sense. Given that so much of Sheffield will have been blocked and clogged with rubble and debris, a graveyard offers a wide, grassy, relatively open space for people to gather. So do parks, you might say, and that's true, but parks under civil defence plans will probably have been used or allocated for other purposes. For example, as we just heard in the radio broadcast, survivors are being asked to rendezvous in Abbeydale Park to be allocated work. And my own research in the archives showed that, um, in real life, Sheffield had allocated many of its big parks to be mass burial grounds, including the appropriately named Graves Park. So it makes sense to gather instead in the graveyard. There are no buildings there which could have collapsed, only squat, sturdy Victorian stone, and the only bodies here, um, thus far, are the ones six feet underground. We see two survivors sitting propped up against a gravestone. It's Mr Kemp and an old man. Both of them are filthy, exhausted, grimy, and wow, Mr Kemp looks rough. He's clearly in the throes of radiation sickness, but um, as the film has made clear, a huge number of epidemics are probably ravaging the country right now, so he could be adding typhus or cholera or God knows what to his radiation sickness. It's worth noting that Mr Kemp is the sole survivor of his family. Even though the film had earlier made um, little digs at his supposed emasculation, having been made redundant and being uh, reduced, I'm saying that in quote marks, reduced to wearing an apron and cooking for his wife and his eldest son, the family earners, the breadwinners. He had lost his traditional position as a manual worker, a hard grafter who brings home the bacon. And yet here he is, the survivor. Who's emasculated now, eh? Perhaps a comment there from the film's writer, Barry Hines, a famously left-wing writer, that Thatcher's Britain might have tried to strip him of his purpose and dignity, but he soldiers on. Unbreakable. Although he very shortly does get broken, but not by unemployment and deindustrialization. It takes a nuclear holocaust to break the steelworkers of Sheffield. The old man who's sitting uh, shivering and miserable with Mr Kemp was played by the comic actor Nat Jackley. And here's a bit of trivia from his IMDb entry. He first performed on stage in the 1920s as a clog dancer with the eight Lancashire lads 
of whom Charlie Chaplin had once been a member. So from clog dancing to nuclear war, that is an actor with range. The old man is watching others in the graveyard who are wolfing pieces of bread. Some of them are dipping their bread into a bowl, uh, maybe a bowl of water, just to soften the bread. I assume it's hard bread, perhaps mouldy bread. I assume it's not fresh and warm and fragrant straight from the oven. And as he watches them with this pathetic feast, he tells Mr Kemp, I could murder a fag. Used to love a fag after a meal, he says. And it is just so miserable that this is what now counts as a meal in Britain. Dipping bread in stale water in a freezing graveyard. Hardly a meal, and yet old habits die hard. The old man still wants the same old cigarette after eating. Mr Kemp asks him, do you have out to swap? He has cigarettes, the old man has a bottle of whiskey, so they trade. A reminder that money has no value now. The only things worth anything are those which fill you up or keep you warm. Blankets, booze, fags and food. All more precious than rubies. So they swap. Pack of cigarettes for a bottle of whiskey. But later, when Mr Kemp, in his misery, takes a big furious swig from the bottle... His sick stomach rejects it and he spits it out all over the place. A bad idea taking that stuff on an empty tum, let alone one which is sick and starving. So he distracts himself by lifting up Michael's old computer console. We saw Michael playing with it earlier in the house when everything was happy and normal. That was Bomba. Uh, And now Mr Kemp lifts the tiny little handset from the folds of his blanket and switches it on and feebly presses the buttons. and bleeps a boy's 1980s sound and it's all he has left of Michael all he has left of any of them now I don't know anything about computer games Uh, the only games I like are Tetris and Lemmings Uh, we have a section on my Patreon Discord chat group to discuss nuclear war themed computer games and the hobos in that chat mention things like um, DEFCON and ICBM and Fallout and Chernobylite and Stalker. But I largely stay out of that chat group because I have nothing to add. So when it came to identifying the handset and threads, I knew that I had to turn to an expert in retro games. And so I asked Ashens. You might know Ashens from YouTube or from Twitch. And he kindly invited me a couple of years back to appear on his YouTube channel to talk about... Uh, nuclear war and my synesthesia. Anyway, I tweeted Ashens and he was able to name poor old Michael's games console. He told me it was an Epoch Gamebox Penta. 
and that it was an early 5-1 game that folded up, much like the later Game Boy. So there, that's one for the computer nerds. Well, Mr Kemp is soon out of his misery. The scene changes and we see a black and white still photo of his corpse. Lying on its back, eyes staring up at the sky. The sky where all the horror came from in the first place. His corpse lies in a heap with others. And the glowing blue text appears on screen to tell us about disposal of the dead. It says... There is no spare fuel for cremation. No spare fuel for bulldozers. Wasteful of manpower to dig pits by hand. And so, the text continues, Unburied corpses in UK? Estimated 10 to 20 million. So all those plans I saw in the archives to dedicate parks and golf courses to the burial of the dead... Well, that plan has shriveled in the face of reality. In our next scene, we are at Door and Totley Tennis Club. And if you listened to my recent podcast series about my trip to Sheffield, where I visited the filming locations of Threads, you'll know that I went to Door and Totley Tennis Club. But it was the wrong tennis club. So check out the recent Sheffield special pods for more on that big fat fail. But here we are at a nice suburban tennis club in Sheffield. And it is now four weeks after the attack. And no, we are not here for strawberries and cream. Instead, the tennis court, with its high fencing, is being used as a detention camp for rioters and looters. Detention camps are improvised to cope with looters. Their numbers are growing. Now, my four minutes are up here, which is a great shame, as this is an iconic scene. This is where our terrifying traffic warden appears. My version of the film shows that I am at 1 hour, 26 minutes and 57 seconds. And at this very moment... The camera pulls back from the imprisoned crowd on the tennis court and we see our guy, the traffic warden, patrolling the perimeter. There are soldiers there too, acting as guards, but we expect that. We do not expect the traffic warden. So let's leave it there. Our man deserves proper attention. So we'll start our next four minutes of threads at 1 hour 27 minutes when he enters the frame in terrifying close-up. And just a reminder that you can join us on Patreon, where you will get various um, rewards depending on how much you choose to pay, one of which is access to the Discord chat group. We have separate chats for things like uh, we've got nuclear war games, nuclear war films, nuclear war books. We've got one on Ukraine, which I found very useful for just talking over, well, nuclear anxiety, of course and scenarios for how the war might play out there. It's uh, £10 a month for access to the Discord group, where you get um, access to the chat, of course, an Atomic Hobo coaster, an Atomic Hobo ringtone, a postcard for my next nuclear trip, and access to all extra podcast episodes. 
So if you want to join us, please look at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or on Facebook as Nuclear Britain. So thank you all for listening and I will be back next Monday.